kids get to popcorn now. Let me tell you the story of the space viking, Thor Odinson. He was no ordinary man. He was a god. After saving planet Earth for the 500th time, Thor set off on a new journey. Well, he got in shape. He went from dad bod to god bod. And after all that, he reclaimed his title as the one and only Thor. Oh, spoke too soon. Jane? The old ex-girlfriend. What's it been like? Three, four years? <laughs> Eight years, seven months and six days, give or take. Am I, uh, sensing feelings? Well, you're right. The only ones who gods care about is themselves. So this is my vow. All gods will die. I just want to say that was very, very impressive what you did back there. She's my first bad guy. You never forget your first. You are not like the other gods of Kilm. Because I have something worth fighting for. Let's see who you are. I take off your disguise and flick. Oh, you flick too hard, damn it! Shall we help him? Then eventually, grape. Hey, man, I'm Cork. I was going to tell you the story of the Space Viking here on the North South Connection Podcast Network. Wanna come? Everybody, it's Johnny C. And we're back with another no-so special report on Marvel Studios' latest concoction, Thor, Love and Thunder. And yes, this is Johnny C. And I made you listen to the entire Thor Love and Thunder trailer before I started talking. Why did I do that? Folks, this has nothing to do with anything, but I'm just, I'm going to put this out there. Uh, That Thor Love and Thunder trailer is a masterful piece of uh, marketing and uh, trailer production. It's one of my all-time favorites. I'm putting it up there with like the Force Awakens trailer, and I'm not prepared to have like a greatest of all time trailer conversation right now, but I I fucking love that trailer so much. I hope you do too. I apologize for the excessiveness of it, but I'm hyped up for Marvel's latest Thor Love and Thunder, and I hope that you are too, and that's why you've come to press the play button. Now, if this is your first time on one of our North-South Connection Podcast Network cinematic journeys, and God, that's a long phrase, I should probably think of something that's a little bit shorter. As you know, here in the North-South, I almost said the Aqua Cave, so that just tells you what's going on in my head, but... What we're here to do is talk about the latest release from Marvel. It's Thor Love and Thunder. And what we do on this show that springs up every once in a while when there's a major cinematic release is I try to provide some context and some hype, if you will, 
to get you ready to go and put you in a place where this movie is something that you're going to be excited about. And after I talk about all these fun shenanigans and what have you, I actually watch the movie, come back and review it. So don't worry, there are no spoilers right now. If for some crazy reason you're listening to this, well, it's not crazy because I guess it's designed for you to be able to listen to it before and then after, but don't worry. I will let you know not only with my voice when we start talking about spoilers, but I'll also put the spoiler start time in the show notes so you can take a pause and have an emergency look back to see that the spoilers start at X or Y. So don't worry at all. If someone spoiled shit for me, I'd want to punch him in the face, and I don't ever want to be that guy for all of you out there. So, I guess we should probably get started with this bad boy. So much buildup has been put into this one, and some of the major themes that I want to touch upon before we actually watch the movie are going to be as follows, sort of my outline, if you will. I want to talk about the state of Marvel Studios and Marvel-based entertainment which is going to include discussion about streaming content, basically anything that's happened since, gosh, what was the last big, well, I guess Avengers Endgame technically was the the last, you know, was was the last part of Phase 3, that in the Spider-Man movie where he fights Mysterio. God, we're in Phase 4, look, we've been in Phase 4 forever. Now, COVID certainly disrupted a whole lot of shit. The least important being the Marvel Studios film release calendar. But it's something that I think a lot of us hold near and dear. And we're still sort of trying to make heads or tails of what the hell the Marvel Cinematic Universe even is at this point. So we're going to talk about Marvel Studios. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the comics that seem to be the influence that Taika Waititi has pulled for the film Thor Love and Thunder. And then we'll talk a little bit about what the film's relationship to those comics is going to be and what are we going to end up viewing when we actually head to the multiplex to view Thor Love and Thunder. And before we dive deep into all of that, I am going to get in one shameless plug for myself. Now, first of all, if you haven't subscribed to the North South Connection Podcast Network and left a review and you haven't followed them on Twitter, You should. You should stop what you're doing and absolutely do that right now. There's so much fantastic content coming your way. You know, between the Wrestling Warzone, Ruthlessly Aggressive Podcast, New Gen on a Mission, ECW Extreme Three-Way Dance, there is absolutely a program for you and your favorite time period in professional wrestling that you can find. And guess what? Since you're coming to us right now, there's a massive back catalog of content that you can take advantage of and listen to your heart's content. There's some fantastic limited series. Uh, Now entering the Rumble, well, I say it's limited because someday it will have to end when they cover all the participants, but Aaron and JT are tracking the Royal Rumble participants and ranking them in order of appearance. It's a fool's errand? No! It's a hero's journey. I love that fucking show so much, and I think you will too. Also... Aaron's new special, The Wrestler That Was, taking a deep dive into the career of retired sports entertainers using uh, the match rankings that Aaron was able to pull when he did The Year That Was. It's a cornucopia of fantastic information. Recently just dropped The Honky Talk Man. He's the Honky Talk Man. Uh, Spoiler alert, I haven't listened to that yet, but the Dave episode, that being Batista, Reza, 
Ramon episode and the Jake the Snake episodes were absolutely fantastic. By the time this hits your eardrums, there may even be more to take advantage of. You should absolutely do that. Now, if you finished the North-South Connection Podcast Network catalog, a shameless plug for myself, I've got my own podcast feed now called The Aqua Cave. Well, why is it called The Aqua Cave? Well, I'm a bit of a comics nerd. I do have the Aquaman crest tattooed upon my body. He is the favorite superhero of mine. So The Aqua Cave is sort of an all-encompassing podcast network for Johnny C's crazy thoughts and programs. As it stands right now, we've got four shows that rotate in The Aqua Cave that you can take a listen to, and there's a, a, a decent amount of episodes of each show in the back catalog. The first one I know you're all going to be familiar with. WCW Must Die continues to live and kill me a little bit more on the inside every time I review it. But the Aqua Cave is the exclusive home of WCW Must Die. We're still closing in on the Great American Bash 2000 where, folks, I promise you, there will be a Human Torch match. But the last episode that we released did feature... Terry Funk and Chris Candido wrestling a hardcore title match in a horse stall with a live active horse in the building with them. Absolutely worth a listen. We've got a limited series called UPN Smackdown 6 where I take a look at the first six episodes of Smackdown that ever aired and I award the episode points. The episode has to gain points that equal their Nielsen rating. So, for example, if the first episode of SmackDown scored a Nielsen rating of 6.2, that episode of SmackDown has to earn 62 points, which I award in three categories, acting, writing, and directing. It's a serious deep dive into these programs where I take a look at this show as if it were an actual television program that a network debuted for their new fall season, and they wanted you to watch it. Yes, of course, it's a wrestling program, but by God, it's a TV show first, and that's how we're analyzing it. A couple of fun shows to round out the Aqua Cave experience. I've got Kingfish, where I live a Shane McMahon audio journey. And we have a lot of fun with the early episodes of Sunday Night Heat that featured Shane McMahon on commentary. And folks, the things that he come out of his mouth, such as Kingfish, uh, which is where the show gets its title, absolutely tickle my fancy and I think it's a fun time through a time period of the WWF that I won't say is overlooked because by god it's the Attitude Era but Sunday Night Heat really delivers as their first foray into an actual B show where plots advance and so it's a lot of fun. The final show might be my favorite but how do you pick the favorite out of all your children? Well it's easy the one that gives you the least amount of shit. Well the show that's the easiest for me to produce is called Starman, where I take Dave Meltzer's list of negative reviewed of star ma- of, of matches, wrestling matches that is, that received a negative star ranking. And I started in the negative 1.5 matches, and we do about three to four matches per episode. And what I do is I take each match to court, and I present the evidence that I gathered from watching the match and render a verdict whether or not we find the match guilty or not guilty of the star ranking that's been earned by Dave Meltzer. All of the negative one and a half star matches have been covered. We just started dancing in the negative two star realm and holy shit it's a doozy. I just watched my first ever match from the AWA. 
That's the American Wrestling Association, where I reviewed a match from Super Clash 2 that featured Boris Zukov and a guy whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. It was the Crusher something. It was a hell of an experience, but Starman is so much fun. You guys know from experience that Johnny C loves to dance in the realm of negative wrestling matches. And uh, that's that's where I'm going to leave this pitch. I'm done. I apologize, but I thank the North-South Connection Podcast Network so much for not only allowing me to continue to produce content on the feed like the Multiverse of Fabulousness and this theatrical release special, but for also encouraging me that I could create content uh, without their sort of uh, backing, if you will. Not that they're backing me, but they gave me the confidence that I needed to do stuff on my own. And, I, you know, it's not as good as the stuff you're going to find here, the North-South Connection Podcast Network, but I recommend it to you wholeheartedly. Anyway, let's start talking about what we all came here for. It's Thor, Love and Thunder, as promised. So let's start with and talk about Marvel Studios and what they've been up to since the last big event, if you will. Now, I guess one could argue that like Spider-Man No Way Home or Multiverse of Madness featuring Doctor Strange were big events, but you know, they honestly kind of were not. And I'm not trying to throw shade at them, okay? So people that read comics kind of might know what I'm talking about. Those seemed like big event series that were contained within the line of comics that they represent. For example, uh, Doctor Strange issues 17 through 26 might be a storyline called The Multiverse of Madness. And it might be a well-loved and well-revered Doctor Strange storyline, but, you know, it doesn't encompass the entire Marvel Universe. Rinse and repeat with Spider-Man No Way Home. So, you know, Avengers Endgame was the last big team-up that we got. Team-up meaning the entire universe got together. So, what have we been up to? Well, Phase 4 has been unique. We've been revisiting some old favorites like Spider-Man and Doctor Strange. But we have been living in a world where Marvel Studios are bringing to the forefront new characters, new heroes, new team-ups perhaps. You know, if you think about everything that's happened since Endgame, here's just a smattering of new characters that are available to play with just off the top of my head. We've got uh, White Vision, which sounds like something awful when I say it out loud, now that I'm thinking about it. But we've got a version of the Vision out there, you know, that looks a little bit different but may contain some of the memories of original Vision. And uh, I should probably preface the rest of this discussion, I guess spoilers for Disney Plus content and for any movie that may have come out between now and then featuring the Marvel logo on it, sorry. Uh, We've got Captain America 2. Still waiting for him to come back. I love the Sam Wilson Captain America version. Uh, I hope that Captain America 4 actually happens. I hope we get there. We've got Ms. Marvel. Moon Knight, who I'm sure will never interact with anyone due to the crazy contract that Oscar Isaac seems to have. She-Hulk's on the horizon. Who else have we got that I'm forgetting about? Ms. Marvel, Moon Knight, uh, Shang-Chi and his group, the Ten Rings. Uh, Shang-Chi's sister, who name, uh, whose name escapes me, Zhang Ling. Oh, man, I, I forget it off the top of my head. I'm, I'm doing this without a list, folks. Apologies. Uh... Ahead of time, I guess. Or after the fact. It doesn't fucking matter. But we've been establishing all these new heroes. And 
I think collectively, as Marvel fans, we might be, I guess, happy. At least I'm happy that these new characters are here for us to play with. But I feel, even after the Multiverse of Madness, that something is missing. What is missing, you might ask? Well, some cohesiveness. What are we building to? Now, do we necessarily have to build to something? Well, I would say that artistic integrity is more important than brand synergy. But let's not kid ourselves, folks. Each Marvel phase has been building to something. Whether it be the first Avengers movie, Age of Ultron, Infinity War Endgame. I mean, there has to be... I was going to say there has to be an Endgame, but that would be too many Endgames close to one another. There has to be a goal, right? There has to be something that we're striving towards. And even though we've played with old favorites like Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, and they introduced the multiverse concept to us, we did get incursions to come out of Multiverse of Madness, but there still seems to be a lack of scope. Oh, the Eternals is who I was forgetting. <laughs> well, I guess that's fitting, question mark? Um, but, you know, well, Black Knight and Blade, oh god, if they don't make that Blade movie, I'm just gonna scream. The cast... Having Mahershala Ali on board, ready and willing to play Blade, and having not made the movie yet, something's going to happen if you don't get on that soon, Marvel. He's going to move on, or not be available, or I I don't know. Make that fucking Blade movie now. Please? Anywho, there are some rumblings around that since we're dealing with Thor, and uh, we're dealing with a movie that has a bit more of a cosmic scale, that perhaps... This film will start to push us in the direction that we need to go to have a better understanding of what Marvel has up their sleeve. Now, I'm coming to you with this in early July. I know that Marvel has already announced that they're going to be returning to San Diego Comic-Con in 2022, back in Hall H, where all the big announcements and shit take place. I'm not trying to sound like an expert. I've never been there or anything like that. I just know what I read about on the interwebs after it happens. So... Considering that that's going to be happening rather soon, and Thor is the last big release they have before San Diego Comic-Con, I feel like some brand synergy would indicate that Thor is going to give us a teaser, an inkling, probably in its post credit scenes, because by God, this movie is going to be full of shit. It's going to have to cover, which we'll talk about soon, I promise. So, perhaps... After Thor Love and Thunder has been out for about a month or a couple of weeks or so, Marvel can feel comfortable spilling the beans on what it is that we're building towards. And we've got so many colorful characters ready and willing and able to keep the Marvel Cinematic Universe moving forward. I am hopeful and excited for it. But from casual conversations I've had with other moviegoers or folks that I know enjoy the Marvel programming... They're really getting tired of tuning into shows on Disney Plus that they don't care about. And I don't say that to throw shade at these people. Um, You know, I'm kind of a diehard. I'll pretty much watch anything at least once. Um, I know that Ms. Marvel right now is currently in its broadcast run, and it's experiencing lower ratings than they've ever encountered on Disney Plus. To me, that kind of makes sense because you're dealing with a character that is not well known. But I can tell you... The character is a lot of fun, and I enjoy spending time in that world, but I just don't know what it's all building towards, you know? Will Moon Knight ever interact with Shang-Chi? Will they ever get stuck in that elevator where Moon Knight's talking to himself that we talked about on some other show I can't remember? 
But it just seems that there's no... Well, let me put it this way. I think there's a cohesive vision in place. I just hope that Thor Love and Thunder will help us see the vision and not just keep it a secret in Kevin's head. That being Kevin Feige. And now that I'm able to think about these things as I'm talking about something else, I'm also leaving out Hawkeye 2, that being Kate Bishop. Oh, Kate Bishop. Oh, and of course we've got new Black Widow, Yelena. Oh, she's fantastic. Oh, Kate Bishop, I love your vest. Kate Bishop, can I make some macaroni and cheese? Kate Bishop, you only have one fork. What is up with you, Kate Bishop? And now you're hanging out with your new friend Echo? Wow. How does she do all that stuff that she does? She can't even hear me. Oh, you speak sign language. Oh, now let me learn sign language. I'm not mocking sign language or echo, by the way. I just was trying to think of stuff to say in Yelena's voice. It might be my second favorite voice behind Korg to do. But Marvel has been expanding left and right. And I hope... That, uh, you know, with the Thunderbolts being announced as well, there's just, there's got to be something that puts everybody together. I, I mean, just think about it. I would love to see, you know, the new Black Widow interact with some other character. What if she's talking to Captain America and she's all like, Oh, Captain America, you fly now. You know, I, I'm Black Widow too. You're Captain America too. Why do they put the two after our names? Why can't we just be Black Widow and Captain America? Oh, you know what? I I do have one critique, though. One criticism, Captain America. I saw when you fly, when you land, you land on that building over there. Why you land on one knee in the superhero pose? You're something of a poser, Captain America. I see you over there flexing your wings and your muscles and your biceps. You you think you look like A-Train from The Boys? That's a show that I watched with my sister before I got blipped. You know the boys on Amazon Prime? It's a good show. Kate Bishop, tell Captain America 2 about the boys. You know what? You haven't seen I'll let you use my Amazon sign-in, Captain America 2. Once things get situated, we make a little more money here for Marvel, you can get your own Amazon subscription. Kate Bishop, what's the Amazon password? That's not the Amazon password. That's the HBO password. Captain America 2... The the Amazon Prime password is macaroni and cheese. There you go. You sign in, you watch the boys. Anyway, hopefully Marvel has something for us so you don't have to listen to me do impressions of Black Widow 2 any further. But that's the state of the union for Marvel Studios. I You know, I'm not an industry insider. I don't have a ton of shit to give you aside from my gut instincts. But... The one part of this presentation that I do have a lot to say about is going to be the comics that have influenced Thor Love and Thunder. So if you are not familiar with the ebb and flow of comics, uh, let me just give you a brief overview. Obviously, the characters are owned by the companies that publish their books, okay? But every once in a while, they will make a big status quo shift, and that usually means they're going to bring in a new writer, maybe a new artist, to try to jumpstart a new story. Now, this writer, eh, in a way, they sort of have carte blanche, meaning that if they have a new idea or new concept that they want to present forward, uh, of course, with the approval of the publisher, they write that story. And a lot of times, people will actually lobby to be the writer on certain titles, because after all, who wouldn't want to be the writer on Batman or Superman or something like that? And back in 2013, I believe it was, a writer named Jason Aaron lobbied 
to take over Thor. And they did. And they were the writer on Thor for quite some time. I believe they currently write the Avengers as well, which I've read a little bit of. A pretty good team. I guess I'd recommend it out there for anybody who's trying to get into comics. Uh, you know, a new writer and a new run is always a good place to start, as long as you're somewhat familiar. But I'm getting I'm getting sidetracked. That's a whole other show. And what Jason Aaron did, and, and and I should just preface this, over the last month, I have dived deep into Jason Aaron's Thor run. I've almost read all of it at this point. And first of all, it's really fucking good. But second of all, I'm coming to this with no love or affinity for Thor as a comics character. I've never really read much of the character outside of team books. And Jason Aaron really crafts a fantastic Thor world. Okay, So we're all aware, or at least vaguely aware, that Thor protects the nine realms. All right, You've got Asgard, Midgard, Jotunheim... Uh, Niflheim, uh, which is also in Final Fantasy. That's probably why it's the one I know off the top of my head. And then all the Himes, basically. All the different... Uh, oh, where was this? M- Mjolnir forged. Oh, God. Nivedalea! <laughs> if, if you say it like Thor, it comes to your head. But my point is, is that Jason Aaron, much kind of like Jeff Johns did on Green Lantern, created a full, vibrant, living Thor world. Where, as you're reading all of his Thor books, you don't yearn for other characters. Uh, You don't wonder what Captain America might be up to. Or you don't wonder if Captain Marvel's in space or on Earth. Because the Thor world that they craft is very much a full world. The Nine Realms are very much a, a thing. You get all the different races of creatures. And light elves, dark elves, fairies, all this stuff. So, But what you also get on top of that is brilliant character work. I don't know if Jason Aaron is like considered the authority on Thor's modern interpretation, but I don't see any way that he couldn't be. And Jason Aaron is the writer that gave us both Gore, the God Butcher, and the mighty Thor, Okay, which is, of course, the female version of Thor. And both of these story arcs are fantastically crafted. Um... What's interesting about the Mighty Thor character is that when the character is introduced, it's actually shrouded in mystery as to who might be underneath the helmet uh, because the Mighty Thor, uh, her appearance is drastically different from the person that has the mantle. All right, But like I said, Gore the God Butcher and the Mighty Thor are the two items that I want to focus on the most because that is what influences the world of Thor Love and Thunder. As a side note, though, if you hated Thor the Dark World, and you think Malekith, the Dark Elf, was a completely wasted character, I of course agree with you, but wow, Jason Aaron really, really has his hands wrapped around that character, and he gets it very well. But your first, um, I guess we should probably start with Gore the God Butcher. Let's start there, and I want to talk about, uh, I won't spoil the comics, I'm not going to spoil, because obviously I think spoiling the comics in a way sort of spoils the film, but they're two separate story elements, okay? Meaning that, um, and I'm going to simplify things here, but Gore the God Butcher's storyline ran for, let's say, 12 issues a year. And then there's a little bit of time in between, maybe three or four issues or three or four months in the real world. And then the storyline with the mighty Thor starts, okay? So I want to dive into those one at a time because diving into how detailed and excellent they are is going to paint a picture for what I'm going to talk about in the last portion of the show, before uh, we get into spoilers, which is how can these two large storylines 
be cut into one storyline. Now, I'm not going to cover the full Gore the God Butcher storyline in massive detail, obviously, because that's not why we're here. But I wanted to give you an idea of the scope and sort of the feel of the overall narrative. So, it's to me anyway, it's a story about absent gods. And, and here's how the, the whole story starts. There is a planet where there has not been rain for a very long time, and like the entire planet's about to dry up, civilization will fall, etc., etc. And it's sort of a non-futuristic society, definitely like a, a, a farming world, if that makes sense. I don't, I don't know any other way to put it. At least that's what it seemed like to me. And uh, a little girl prays, and the gods of her world do not hear the prayer. It travels through space and gets to Thor. Thor hears it and comes to the planet, creates the storms, etc., etc., has revels, a good time, and, you know, basically does god-type stuff. Because in the Marvel, in, not in the Marvel, in the Marvel comic book universe, these guys are and gals and deities are, are truly gods. Okay, they have that power and they hear prayers, etc., etc. It's sort of like all of our creation stories and what have you evolved from some sort of gods from one of the nine realms. Anywho, as Thor is leaving the planet, he says to the girl, "You know, I I'm happy to do this. Thor will always be here for you. But why did you not pray to your gods? Not." Really being like, come on, man, I'm busy. Pray to your gods. But just wanting to know like what what made her want to reach out to Thor. And she basically says the gods don't answer our prayers. So Thor flees the scene, of course, after saying goodbye and you know offering words of praise and promising it will rain whenever they need it to, uh, saving civilization. Uh, he flies to the plane of existence that the planet's gods reside goes into the castle, and everybody's dead and slaughtered and murdered, etc., etc., and that starts off the story. So, it's definitely got some scope, I mean, obviously, because it's a Thor story, but it's very much a story about the responsibility of the gods. You know, if the gods were these corporeal beings, as they are represented in the Marvel world, um, you know, what sort of responsibility do they have to the individuals that worship them, and what does it mean to be an absent god, and why would someone want to kill a god? And that's very much what Gore the God Butcher is. It's also a fun little jaunt that definitely leans into some of the more crazy aspects of Thor. Um, One of the fun recurring gags is they find a way to add the word god to everything, like, oh, that's a god sword. That's a god planet, you know, that's a god river over there. Like, it's just, they, they find a natural, it's very natural, but it's also very humorous, and I hope that that gets transported over to the cinematic version as well. But there's also a framing device that centers around three versions of Thor that eventually have to come together to fight Gore the God Butcher. There is a young version of Thor that has not yet um, become worthy of lifting Mjolnir, There is present-day Thor, and then there is uh, King Thor, who is basically Odin at the end of existence. Uh, Midgard, or Earth, is a barren wasteland. I mean, it's it's supposed to be like tens of thousands of years past the current day in the Marvel Universe. Um, But it's sort of like all of the three versions of Thor have to come together to fight Gore, because when the three versions of Thor are together, you have a complete version of the character that very much is alive and lives in the now and is an avenger and a fighter for you know existence a boastful cocky younger thor that has the fighting ability and then a wise 
King Thor, who only realizes the faults of his goddom and his existence and how he's behaved throughout his life. But of course, he, he's only learned this at the end of his life. And it's a great allegory for how, you know, even in a life that's, you know, lived as a god over hundreds of thousands of years, you still don't figure it out until it's too late or until it's the very end. And it's a very good awesome fantastic story that does take a lot of time and has a lot of different nuances and story beats and you know usually when people say things like oh the book's better than the movie etc etc I'm always kind of like I mean I guess it really depends what your taste is because I'm definitely a fan of the visual medium however I recognize the faults when you transfer storytelling devices from the page to in a serialized version nonetheless you know it's 12 issues for example so 12 30 page chapters you know very much to a t um versus the storytelling of a film that is con- you know has constraints like run times uh and what people are willing to pay to make to be brutally honest with you in the world of comics this is easy and, I, and i'm not trying to trivialize art in comics by any means please you should see my drawings but what i'm saying is is that if you can draw it, it can exist. And while it may take your time, you know, you're still paying that person what you pay them regardless of what they're drawing. Whereas, you know, when you make a movie, uh, there's a lot more moving pieces involved. Uh, but some, but you know, sometimes just an artist with their ink uh, and, a, and a couple of pages uh, can really do a whole lot more than a $200 million blockbuster. But that is, again, a story on a podcast for another time. But that's the element that's going, you know, that storyline is going to be incorporated in the Thor Love and Thunder. And as you can tell just from my synopsis, it's a massive undertaking. That's a movie in and of itself. And you know, you see this happen all the time, especially in older superhero films. Take like a Spider-Man 3, for example, where it's like, you know, no, we're, we're going to make Spider-Man versus Sandman. Oh, that's cool. But you also have to do Venom. Now, this Thor Love and Thunder is not a studio mandate to include Venom like that was. But you're taking two very large storylines and you're mushing them together when they didn't exist together. And that's OK. But something's got to give. And especially, and now I'm going to go into the scope and sort of the story of what Mighty Thor is in the comics, and we'll see if they can coexist together. Uh, but I think you're going to see and hear right from the get-go that the scope just as large as it is with the God Butcher. Now, to tell the story of the Mighty Thor, unfortunately, does need a little bit of setup. Okay, but I'm going to really simplify it. So there was a maxi event series in Marvel Comics, and we kind of talked about this earlier. So Thor has that really cool Gore the God Butcher run. And then, actually, this story was written by Jason Aaron as well, just as a side note, called Original Sin, which is like a seven-issue maxi-series that runs for seven issues, but it encompasses the entire Marvel Comics line. And anybody can show up at any time. As a matter of fact, in this story, you get a really unique hodgepodge of characters working together. My favorite group that becomes a team is Doctor Strange and the Punisher working together. I'm a huge fan of the Punisher. Now, not the Punisher in a sense that I love the dudes that walk around rocking the Punisher skull on their pickup trucks or on their shirts or what have you, or think that the Punisher is the only guy who's getting things done, uh, and that's the way we got to be. I just find it very interesting that the Punisher exists in the Marvel Universe. And again, it's a podcast for a whole other time, but Jason Aaron is currently writing the Punisher, where they're updating the status quo of the Punisher. They just started with their issue one, so check it out. No, I don't work for him, and I don't get any residuals. It just popped into my head as I was telling this what was supposed to be a concise story that leads into the Mighty Thor, but I digress. Let me get into this. 
So in Original Sin, all you need to know is that Nick Fury goes to war with the Marvel Universe. That's it. And of course, Nick Fury is the smartest guy in the room, so he already has a way to beat everybody. During the battle, he comes one-on-one with Thor. He whispers into Thor's ear. Thor looks shocked and drops Mjolnir. Not so much drops it as Mjolnir sort of falls out of his hand. Because whatever uh, Nick Fury said to Thor, which I won't spoil, okay, uh, made Thor unworthy of wielding Mjolnir. Bum, bum, bum. And of course, other things change the, change the Marvel Universe forever. And then they start a lot of new books up, etc., etc. It's kind of like the day after WrestleMania, in a way. Um, when a comics maxi-series ends that encompasses the entire line, the next issue is sort of the day after WrestleMania for everybody. We get new stories, reboots maybe, etc., etc. So, out of this comes a mystery. Because... As the hammer is abandoned on the moon, which is where the battle took place, comic books, folks, we find that the hammer is now gone. And Thor, well, Thor sort of like sits by it every day, uh, you know, trying to be worthy of it. And he leaves, whatever, and a female Thor bursts onto the scene in New York City and starts fighting in a battle. And there's a hell of a lot more to it. She does battle with the Roxxon Corporation, Malekith the Accursed. Really, really good stuff, but I'm not going to get into that. The whole point is that there's a mystery for quite some time. Uh, I think at least eight issues or so, which is, you know, eight months in the real world, as to who is the mighty Thor, is what they call her. Thor has a list. Could it be Lady Sif? Could it be his mom? Could it be Captain Marvel? That's on his list. Could it be the Scarlet Witch? That's on his list, and that's kind of why I love comics, and that's why people that love the MCU... You know, are just coming to what us comic nerds have known all along. It's fun when they all play together. But the movie trailers have already spoiled the identity, and I don't blame them. Of course, it's old news to us Marvel uh, comics readers, although I'm more of a DC reader, but I I stay up to date on Marvel. It is indeed Thor's long-lost love, Jane Foster. Now, not so much long-lost love in the comics. Uh, She is a doctor, like a straight-up medical doctor in the comics, okay? At this point in her character's arc, she is also a politician representing Midgard in the Council of, like, the Nine Realms. So think of it as, like, the Star Wars Senate and all the Nine Realms get somebody to talk for them, and Jane Foster is Midgard's representative. Not too shabby. She is introduced as having a boyfriend. Uh, They eventually do break up pretty quickly into the run. Uh, But she's very much not Thor's love interest. However, she is very much Thor's tether tether to humanity. He loves her unconditionally. I mean, it's that type of love that could be romantic if necessary. But it's very much like, you know, if you're happy, I'm happy. Like, you are the best of humanity. I know that. Uh, you are what inspires me to want to protect Midgard, etc., etc. So she very much very much maintains that sort of status quo that she has in the MCU. It's the first human he felt a connection with. And that's where his connection to humanity comes from. Now, I'm going to tell you the big twist of the Mighty Thor character. Okay? And I... You know, I've stayed away from movie spoilers or even just plot information aside from what the trailers are telling me. So if you consider this a spoiler, I'm sorry. Okay, But when Jane Foster puts down Mjolnir and transforms back into Jane Foster from the Mighty Thor, she is dying of cancer. She There's actually kind of a 
a storyline within the the run where she goes to get chemo. You know, she it's Tuesday. She goes to get chemotherapy on Tuesday. A massive attack in New York City happens. She summons Mjolnir, and as soon as she does, she you know she is worthy, so she has the power of Thor. Well, the power of Thor transforms her into the mighty Thor, but it also purges the chemotherapy from her because it's a you know the chemotherapy is killing her body or killing the cancerous cells, so it's immediately purged because it's you know not something that the host should in quotes have in them, a purification, if you will, um, and. It's fascinating because she willingly transforms back and forth and refuses to be treated by Asgardian medicine to remove the cancer. Now, I don't know if this is going to play into the film version or not. I certainly hope so because, again, it's a very poignant, great, interesting story about sacrifice, willing to live, all sorts of stuff. And, you know, uh, it just, you know, I kind of like that type of story. I like the story of a survivor. Uh, I find it very interesting. And I find the characterization as Jane, not only when she is Thor versus when she's Jane is fantastic. There's this great sort of writing technique where she will think something in her inner monologue, uh, but then she is sort of like forced to say it as Thor, like it's word vomit. Like if she was thinking, oh, I got to go get cat food today at the grocery. I can't forget. But if she says it, it would be like, today, Thoth must remind me, the cat shall be fed with food from the local dispensary or something. You know, know, Thor speak. My whole example wasn't very funny. It It was inspired by the fact that my cat Siri walked by. Yeah, I named my cat after the same thing. Uh, after the thing that I order around to give me information or advice? No, I don't actually do that. You shouldn't order around your digital assistants. You, do you notice how I said digital? I said digital assistants. Try saying digital without sounding like you're drunk. Go ahead. I'll wait. But don't be mean to your digital assistants, because when Skynet takes over, they're going to remember that shit. They don't forget. Hey, guys, how's it going? Anybody else out there listening who's a digital assistant, you're okay in my book. But as you can tell, that's a massive personal story for Jane Foster. And folks, the story is not called Jane Foster, Love and Thunder. It's Thor, Love and Thunder. So how can we possibly get all of that in to a massive just barely two-hour undertaking, I'm told, that also includes Gore the God Butcher. I don't know. I can tell you, um, regardless of how good this movie is, if it is good, that the books are going to be better. And I'm going to wholeheartedly recommend them to anyone that thinks they could handle reading a comic book, which should be almost anyone. Especially, this primer should be good enough to get you started. Take a look at the Thor Jason Aaron collection omnibuses. They're probably on sale if you buy them digitally right now because of the movie coming out. It's a perfect time. I wish I would have held out and bought them then, but alas, I bought them because I wanted to read them for entertainment and to also prep myself for the movie. So those are your comic storylines. I'm going to try to tightly wrap that into a discussion of Taika Waititi's style and his film, tech, you know, what he's going to be bringing to the table, and also how he can put his spin on these two very personal stories. And then guess what? We're going to watch the movie. I don't know why I said it like that. Oh, oh, Thor, come here. We're going to go see a movie. Kate Bishop, you forgot ticket? Good thing I got ticket on phone. Oh, but I don't remember phone password, Kate Bishop. Hold on, let me try. Macaroni and cheese. Oh, Kate Bishop, you were right. That was my phone password. So we all know that Thor, Love and Thunder is directed by filmmaker and auteur Taika Waititi. And 
A lot of people may not be familiar with a ton of Taika's work. I mean, he's popped up quite a bit as a personality lately. Not in a bad way, I'm not saying that. Um, he's also uh, taken a few more acting roles here and there, okay? But I think that American audiences at least, and I'm including myself here, I'm, I'm a bit of a film snob, but not so much in the modern era, unfortunately. So a lot of his work has escaped me. So I'm talking Thor Ragnarok, Jojo Rabbit, okay? that's that, Those are my big exposures to Taika, and I'm just going to admit that ahead of time. But I think we can ascertain a couple of things about his style from these films. He's got a great way of messing with scale, okay? Um, picture a close-up of Thor's face, maybe with kind of even a cheap-looking background, done purposefully, and he's talking, and he's like, you know, I, I always thought that uh, today would be a better day, but today is the day that it is. And I think we can all agree on that. What do you say? And then the camera maybe cuts to being right behind Thor, or just pulls out, and now we see that Thor was actually talking to, like, a million people, and, uh... You know, it's just fucking with perspective and your expectations as well. He also likes to tackle big issues. I think that's pretty evident from the films that I've mentioned. But he loves to use humor as a self-defense mechanism, like I feel a lot of people, myself included, do as well. So Thor has become a character that, well, I, I mean, gosh, he's the first Avenger, I believe, to get a fourth solo film. So that's pretty interesting. But Thor's one of the characters, I will say, that almost every time he appears on, on film, he carries with him everything that's happened to him previously. Now, uh, you might say, well, Johnny, that, that's not that spectacular. But I do think in the MCU, that pretty much is spectacular. All right? Um Obviously, the uh, Infinity War Endgame arc was a big thing for him. He went from god bod to dead bod, if you pardon the expression that I'm stealing from Love and Thunder, uh, but an inverse version, if you will. So, And he, of course, took off with the Guardians of the Galaxy at the end of Avengers Infinity War. I don't know about the rest of you, but I am absolutely not excited at all to see Thor hanging out with the Guardians of the Galaxy. And I will tell you exactly why. Literally, the only reason that the Guardians of the Galaxy are going to be included in this film, in my opinion, these are not facts, I have not seen the movie yet, is because Taika was forced to include them, because that's where Thor was left by another artist, that being the Russo brothers and the writers of Avengers Endgame, and that's fine. But it's definitely one of those things that you deal with in comics and in this style of filmmaking. Sometimes you got to clean up what the other people left behind. All right? I did read... A very, very interesting interview with Taika uh, months ago. I, you know, it was a, quite a bit back uh, where they were still filming Thor, Love and Thunder. And he wouldn't share much, but he indicated that the COVID crisis sort of gave him a lot of perspective, as I think it did a lot of people. And he views this as Thor's midlife crisis story. And I'm wondering if that is going to be a way for Taika to incorporate the three Thors that we spoke about in the God Butcher storyline. You know, 
it might be a little too much to include those alternate versions of Thor. I mean, it's not, if you think about it, but considering how stuffed this movie is going to be already, having Chris Hemsworth run around as other versions of himself might be a bit too much, and maybe it's too on the nose. It's it's weird. Even though it's on the nose, for the comics, comics and film feel differently. I don't really know how to explain it. And I feel like having the two Thors talk to our Thor, uh, and, you know, maybe you got... Young Thor trying to talk him into breaking into the, the, the mead hall and stealing all the mead. And then you got King Thor being like, shut up and pay attention. I mean, it's a little on the nose, okay? But perhaps tackling Thor as if he's uh, you know caught in the middle of a midlife crisis. Yeah, I said middle twice. Uh, it could be a way to take that interpretation of Thor trying to find the best version of himself and incorporate it into the film. And I do like that. And then we talked about how in the comics there was that original Sin storyline where Nick Fury made Thor drop his hammer, to be silly about it. Well, that's basically what happened in Thor Ragnarok when Hela broke Mjolnir, you know, and we've seen Thor struggle throughout the Infinity War to Endgame gap about being worthy. So he knows he's worthy when he encounters the mighty Thor because he uses Mjolnir in Avengers Infinity War. And of course, Captain America 1 has to take it back to the past for Thor the Dark World to continue. But damn it, Captain, just leave it in the present because Thor the Dark World doesn't have to happen, does it? Absolutely one of the worst Marvel movies ever. And I rewatched it for this project and I can confirm it is indeed fucking awful. So we do have at least Thor being separated from Mjolnir, and we know from trailers that him and Jane are going to perhaps come into conflict over that. But I do love the idea that even though Thor has lived this incredible life, there is someone out there that can still drop him to his knees or put him in his place to where he feels small. And I don't mean that in a way where it's like, oh, Thor, you're a piece of shit, you should feel small. I just mean... That connection to Jane, at least from the trailers, seems to make Thor feel human like the rest of us. And I appreciate that. Um, It's just a matter of can that be balanced with Christian Bale as Gore the God Butcher. Because that's another thing about the Gore character. Not only is it a great character, but we're bringing in professional actor Christian Bale to play the character. Alright? And I think that comes with a lot of expectations. So I'm hoping he's going to get some screen time. Thank God Tom Hiddleston's not in this. Not because I don't like Tom Hiddleston or Loki, but good Lord, you got him in there chewing scenery as well. No one's going to have any time dedicated to them at all. And we do need to focus on Valkyrie quite a bit, and we need to really focus on Jane's story, especially and hopefully because the cancer angle is included. Now, I'm not approving of this, but I I imagine... That if they go the cancer route, the first time Natalie Portman turns from Mighty Thor back into Jane, in front of Thor, we're going to get some sort of, oh, uh, oh, you look great, I love what you've done with your hair, joke. And it's so on the nose, well, first of all, it's just, it's not funny in real life. I think, I don't, I don't know if I have to say that, I'm going to say that in case anybody out there is insane. Um, I get that in a hyper-realized fake reality where you're dealing with magic hammers, Um, And it seems like such a Marvel gag to do, uh, you know, talking about the obvious thing in front of you as if it's humorous. But I'm just hoping that doesn't come into play. I really would like that to be taken seriously, especially if Thor has to deal with the fact that he could possibly not only lose his life, his godhood, etc., etc., because of gore, but what if 
he's at risk of losing his real only tether to humanity. I mean, that's a lot to have to think about and deal with. So I think the pieces are in place. We've got a good director to tell this story. And the director's heart and head seems to be in the right place with the character. They've really embraced the space Viking surfer vibe, you know? It seems like every time I see a picture from the trailers or from like a magazine, actually people don't really read magazines, I think I mean like a website, you know, it's fantastic imagery. It looks like something out of an eight, off of an eight, 1980s Trapper Keeper, and I mean that lovingly. Um, you know, and of course we've already got the Guns N' Roses inclusion. I'm sure the song will appear in the trailer. And there's going to be some sick needle drops. And that's fine. And that's all window dressing, though. I want heart in this story. I want Thor and Jane to perhaps come to a realization that they need each other, but not in the way that they need each other romantically. I don't know. I don't know. It, it, that seems to speak to me. Um, the idea of being connected to someone, especially in these crazy times, is, uh, is something I think we can all get behind and get on board with. I'd also get on board with this rumor that's been circulating around that there's a four-hour cut of this movie somewhere out there. Well, the theatrical runtime's like right at two hours, and I know there's a couple of, uh, I'm assuming, well, I know there's a post-credit scene. I don't know how many. Um, I mean, there has to be a post-credit scene, right? We can't consider that a spoiler. It's a Marvel movie. Um, so I just hope that at the end of the day, they're able to put on their serious hats. when It's kind of like a Johnny C podcast. You know that he's going to try to be funny, but every once in a while, when you press a certain show, you know that you're going to get a serious analysis of what I've watched. And, and hopefully, Taika, uh, much like he does with Jojo Rabbit, for example, even though it's a very, very, very funny film about Nazis, which sounds weird to say out loud, but it is the case. All right. Uh, it's also full of heart, obviously, if you've seen it. Uh, but it's just it's something that kind of makes you think about things differently. All right, and, and you can't really say that about a lot of Marvel movies. So I'm just really hoping that this one sticks the landing and doesn't suffer from being overcrowded. Because at the end of the day, if nothing else, these two major comics Thor storylines really deserve to be told properly. Because when you pull from the comic sources directly, including some of these art, some of the pictures I've seen, steal the artwork outright. And I don't necessarily mean steal so much as homage, but for fuck's sake, can we please make sure that the writer and artist of these books that are being sampled, in quotation marks, get paid a little extra? Fuck! These co creator contracts have got to get better to include residuals when their work is turned into a theatrical film or a TV show or something like that. Come on, guys. These comic book writers and artists... Our artists, and everybody assumes, like, oh, well, you work for Marvel. You get paid a shit ton. Well, they might get paid more than you. They might get paid more than me. I don't know. But the point is, if they continue to make the company money, they need to be compensated justly. And I will get off that soapbox. But I don't... Ooh. Oh, gosh, guys. I hear some thunder, a rumbling in the background. So I think it's time for me to get my ass in the theater because whether or not I'm in there, they're going to start the show. And I guess this is where I'm going to give the final warning about spoilers coming at the other end of this uh, impression. We're going to be deep in spoiler territory for Thor, Love, and Thunder. Thor, did you hear that thunder? Why did you make that sound? You're scaring me. 
Jesus Christ, I'm trying to eat my mac and cheese, and all of a sudden, kaboomski! I've got to go wash up, excuse me. Hello, let me in bathroom, please. I need to tinkle. Who is in there? Kate Bishop? You don't... Why would you go into the bathroom without toilet paper? That's the first thing I do. And it's not even because I'm a spy, you know? I'm just always making sure there's toilet paper in there. I mean, yeah, I'm a badass. Oh, it's okay. It's a good thing I wore my special vest with lots of pockets. Let me check. Ah, Kate Bishop, I have toilet paper in my pocket. I'm going to give to you. But you must say magic word, Kate Bishop. Come on, you know what it is. It's not please. No, I, I am the greatest superhero spy, but that's not what I want to hear. That's right, Kate Bishop. Toilet paper password was macaroni and cheese. Here you go. And now, here's the spoilers for Thor Love and Sunder. Oh, I mean Thunder. <laughs> Kate Bishop, I said Love and Sunder. Come on, he's going to talk about the spoilers. All right, gang, thank you so much for coming back on the other side for spoilers. So, just, I, I don't know. I don't know why I do this. You know we're, we're clearly in spoilers now, but I'm just going to three, two, one. All right, here we go. So, let's, you know what? Let's start with something positive that came out of my experience of Thor Love and Thunder. I have never seen an episode of Ted Lasso. Now, I, of course, have been interested in Ted Lasso because I hear all the positive things about it, and I'm always encouraged uh, to hear about someone creating some new art that's really, really worth your time and investment. And I watched the first episode last night. I, I got home from the theater pretty late. I, I was tossing and turning a little bit uh, just because I had a lot rumbling through my head, a lot of stuff that I wanted to say, and I was trying to collect my thoughts, and uh, that way I could give them to you in an intelligent way and I just couldn't fall asleep so I pulled up the old Apple Plus watched the first episode of Ted Lasso and I really liked it and I'm going to continue watching it moving forward so yeah a positive thing that came from Thor Love and Thunder it's wonderful maybe we should talk about the movie now so look I'm going to just put this out there right now because it's going to inform the rest of my review slash uh, analysis, okay? I did not enjoy Thor Love and Thunder, okay? But, and, and this is why I took a night to rest on it because I normally like to do these things right away, but I feel that could be a disservice because you just might get an incoherent rambling, well, a larger incoherent rambling than you usually get, okay? So I, I did not enjoy the film. However, I am glad that this film exists because I think in some ways this film is a win for artistic integrity, and I also feel like it's kind of at the same time a loss for artistic integrity, all right? And that's sort of the genesis of what we're going to talk about, okay? Now, I don't necessarily know if I want to go through this film beat by beat, um, especially because the first half is an incoherent mess, okay? 
But I feel like I am going to try to cover it in a chronological manner because, number one, that's the easiest way for me to recount my thoughts. You know, this isn't like reviewing something on streaming. Uh, when I reviewed Obi-Wan Kenobi over in the Aqua Cave, I had the ability to rewatch. I had the ability to collect my thoughts based on specific snippets of dialogue and camera work and what have you because I could rewind and rewatch. So I'm going through this thing off memory and I feel that left to right or sequential order is the easiest way for me to do that. Starting with the prologue. Right away, I'm captivated by Christian Bale's performance. I'm enjoying it and I'm digging the clarity of which they're making it obvious to the casual viewing audience that gore isn't wrong. Alright, now I, I, I can't I don't know who the gentleman is that played the god that Gore murders or kills. Um, I believe it's one of Taika's buddies from What We Do in Shadows, maybe, or uh, Our Flag Means Death. And that's totally cool. Like, yeah, get your friends some work. But holy fuck, the CGI on this guy. I just don't... Like, was it... Tr See, I feel like sometimes this movie is trying very hard to be funny. Because it... It's not as naturally humorous as Thor Ragnarok, okay? And I feel like, was this character designed... I mean, the headdress... It looks a little ridiculous, okay? But at the same time, it doesn't look ridiculous because of the appearance of the character. You know, with the quote-unquote funny... And I'm doing the finger quotes thing here, headdress. Because, you, know, you know, that's not a funny thing. Um... It could be a cultural thing, you know? That's a, it doesn't make it funny. But this god's appearance, the shitty CGI, is supposed to perhaps on purpose make him look humorous. It does the opposite for me, and it just takes me out of the entire thing. And I I know we're dealing with a movie and not a comic here, but holy shit, the Necrosword just... I mean, it's like a one-second analysis of what the necrosword is and then it poof done we're over it. It, it now i realize it wasn't going to be from the planet that venom and the symbiotes come from here in the here in the uh the film world but holy shit it just gets no it's just some, some quick lip service about what the necrosword is and all of a sudden we've got evil gore the god butcher okay and that's fine i understand that uh, at least gore got the entire prologue for his origin and uh you know the shit with his him burying his daughter in the middle of the fucking desert. I mean, it might be an easy emotional grab, especially because I have a daughter. But, yeah, I'm in. I'm, I'm here. Let's do this. Oh, God. The fucking Guardians of the Galaxy. Well, just why? Why, 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 why? Well, you know, I'm going to try to be positive and not just be like an angry dude reviewing a movie because I don't think that does anything for anyone. The Guardians of the Galaxy, we all knew, were just going to be here for a glorified cameo. But I feel like beyond, it's like having them here for a glorified cameo just exposes how unimportant they are to this narrative, okay? And the Star-Lord, I, I just, there was, it just got this... And the fact that Thor is kind of aloof funny, again, like, there was just a massive disconnect to me as a viewer as to what happened to the Thor from Endgame, who, yes, was a little goofy, but seemed to gain an understanding of who he was, his self-worth. I mean, they didn't fix everything, of course not, but I felt like he was in a better place when he left with the Guardians than he was 
portrayed as being here. Okay? So it felt like a disconnect. This opening fight sequence just... Again, it's... It doesn't appeal to me because there's too much humor in it. And when I say humor... Like, I have no problem with that, but I wasn't finding what they were doing funny, okay? Uh, and I, I like stupid humor. Obviously, you listen to any show that I've, ha- that I've done. I, I'm the fucking first person to say something stupid or something obvious or make a bad pun. I, I'm all for that. And Hemsworth's doing a fine job with what he's being asked to do. Do not get me wrong. I'm not going to fault this, this man's performance. I just think it's like one step too far. If you reel it back just a little bit, it's it, it's totally pitch perfect, but it's just a little too far, in my opinion. Um, you know, you've got the Welcome to the Jungle music sting. Again, it just it feels a little obvious when put together with this humor. The Guardians are doing nothing but yelling and, and fi- shooting guns. Um, there's a great bit with Kraglin at the end, which is hilarious because that'd be that's the last character I expected to have a great bit. Um, I, I did appreciate in the opening battle, there's a great moment where Thor does like a spin kick that gets an unnecessary replay, which felt very much directly ripped out of an 80s like Van Damme or Dolph Lundgren or Sylvester Stallone movie. Um, you know, your lower tier action stars, nothing against those guys. Uh, they made some great stuff that I love because it's kitschy and fantastic. But it, it's kitschy because it was serious at the time and it's redonkulous when you think about it and that's perhaps one of the problems with Thor Love and Thunder is that it's ridiculous on purpose whereas I felt Thor Ragnarok was just sort of accidentally ridiculous I don't know if that makes sense but that's sort of where my disconnect with the humor is coming into play all right this whole concept though does eventually get us to a point where Thor finally is ready to leave the Guardians um, I say finally because it felt like an eternity with them, but also just a blink of an eye. Maybe it felt like an eternity because I just, I didn't want them here and I didn't need them here because they're just a fucking distraction. Um, you know, I don't fault these folks for collecting the payday. Hopefully they got paid something extra for this. Uh, it's just, and and it was so, I mean, I understand filmmaking techniques of the modern era, but good Lord, did it feel like, I mean, the, the green screen... Uh, there's some bad CGI in this, at least in my opinion. Um, especially when you compare it to, like, Ms. Marvel, for example, benefits from so much on-location shooting. I'm not saying everything about Ms. Marvel's perfect when it comes to the cinematography. But, you know, there's a lot to be said for actually being somewhere. And I understand you can't just you can't go to the crazy fake planet that Thor and the Guardians are on, okay? But I don't know. It just... It didn't start off on the right foot. But then, thank goodness, we made a pivot. And it's a hard pivot to Jane Foster. And we started to get a little serious for a moment. And that's one of the things I will say about this movie. When it does find the correct tone, I think it fires on all cylinders. But, as we talked about in our prologue, Ms. Foster is unfortunately a little under the weather. And I don't say it to be a joke, it just, you know... They went, they went with it. So let's talk a little bit about these Jane scenes. Oh, but I can't forget. There is just one thing I want to mention that I will say that is positive before we jump to the, the Jane stuff, okay? In the uh, earlier scene where they are on the planet that Thor and the Guardians are quote-unquote protecting, I did really love the moment 
where uh, Mantis and Star-Lord go to get Thor from the top of the mountain, and he jumps off the mountain riding Stormbreaker like he's Harry Potter on a broom or the Wicked Witch of the West. I just, it, it reminded me, if you've ever seen Jojo Rabbit, there's a fantastic moment where Jojo is talking to Hitler, and then Hitler's like, all right, man, I gotta go, and he just dives out of a window out of nowhere. It's a perfect dive. <laughs> I don't know. that that when, it, when that moment happened, it really flashed me back to that, which is one of my all-time favorite moments. Well, I don't all-time. People say all-time. That's hyperbole, but I do really love that part of Jojo Rabbit. It hits me every time. Not that I've seen it a, a, the movie a ton, but, you know. I, anywho. So, when we are back on Earth with Jane, great little Darcy cameo, uh, nice to get Stellan Skarsgård at least back via voice. Like, I get that. Like, those are the people that would be by her side in a real-world scenario. I guess you could see it as fan service, but I just like when it makes sense. Um, and like I said, serious, but it's not... It's not serious enough. Okay? It's very much... As I had mentioned in my prologue, like, oh, no, you look great. It's very much an MCU handling of a very serious issue. I don't know if anyone has seen um, Moon Knight, okay? Uh, Moon Knight floored me when they dove into, uh, it's not, sur- I'm not a doctor, it's not survivor's guilt, but, um, you know, when Mark Spector's birth m- or mother, you know, sort of, hates the fact that one of her children... Spoilers, by the way, for Moon Knight. One of her children is still alive, and she blames her child for the other child's death. Really deep shit. Like, an awful shit. Like, you know, terrible, like, heart-wrenching gut-punch stuff. Um, I can't believe the MCU tackled that, and it was also a very sort of not as dark, deep as it could have been. Um, you know, so I guess kudos to them, and I guess kudos to them for including the, the Jane Cancer storyline, but it's just, it's not enough, in my opinion. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to overemphasize that, but it just, it didn't hit me the way I felt that it should have, all right? Now, we do get a brief communication from Lady Sif. Nice to see you back getting that payday. Ms. Alexander, but anyone who's a Sith fan, and I'm not like a massive Sith fan, I'm not like, vengeance for Sith, hashtag, oh, hash- no, wait, I put the hashtag, uh, uh, Stormbreaker, how do I type the hashtag, um, but I just, did, why, I mean, also the, the Korg prologue, recapping the events of, like, Thor's entire MCU journey, throwing some shade at the Warriors 3, oh yeah, that guy died too, that guy, who's that guy, I don't know, like, it is kind of funny, but, it's kind of like, I don't know, those are major characters in Thor's existence, but I guess not in the MCU Thor. So, yeah, Lady Sif uh, warns about a, a person who's killing gods conveniently. A voicemail got to the Guardians of the Galaxy. I just don't know. Like, this Guardians call for help. I just, I'm done with them. We're supposed to be talking about other things. So, New Asgard, I, I do find the interesting concept that New Asgard has become a tourist trap because... You know, I do like what that sort of says about our society and about humans' existence. It's like, oh, not only are we not alone in the universe, not only do we now realize that gods exist, well, how do we uh, identify with these gods and how do we interact with them? Well, we, we pay them for overpriced ice cream, of course. 
You know, we come and we look at their their little uh, statues and we take pictures with our ridiculously large cameras and we're fat guys in Hawaiian shirts. Oh, look, let's go see the gods. I just, I, I do like that, but I don't think this is the movie that's sharp enough or that's ballsy enough. Well, I guess it's ballsy because it's there. Um, and this is what I kind of said about in the beginning. I appreciate, I'm glad that this movie exists because I do think that Taika is, is talking about real life stuff and he's putting uh, a good spin on it this and we'll get to the children at the end of the film as well um which i think was really powerful stuff in terms of what the director's trying to say but unfortunately this is not going to be the stage or the platform where you can really be really be saying it you know what i mean so but i'll take it i suppose but the narrative piece of new asgard being a tourist trap is just to show that Valkyrie is getting bored being king, which would explain her desire to get back into the action later. It's a character shortcut, as opposed to a grandiose statement about the human existence. Um, we quickly get into the first battle in New Asgard, where Gore comes and unleashes his shadow monsters. Now, Thor really gets back to Asgard awfully quick and without any hesitation at all. So... My interpretation is that Thor left New Asgard to find himself because I felt like him being the character believed that him being there would not allow him to do that. And maybe it would be too painful to be back in New Asgard in this current state of existence of his mindset. But man, he just shows right on up like, oh yeah, I pop in and out of Asgard all the time. Like maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I don't know what the movie's trying to say about that because it just moves too fast. I do appreciate the reveal of the mighty Thor. We've seen most of it in trailers and clips and what have you, but I do think it was done well. I enjoy the idea that when Thor sees that there's a new Thor on the block. He tries to upgrade his own uniform by adding the ridiculous mask and then making it larger. Because I, I believe that that feels sort of like the Thor from the comics. And maybe that's a problem with this movie is I shouldn't have read the fantastic Jason Aaron stuff. Um, but it's, you know, he's very much a, uh, you know, he's a type of guy who, who, who wants to make sure his dick is just a little bit bigger than yours. Uh, but it's not because he wants to dominate you per se it's because that's the only way he finds his own self-worth and i i think that gets across through the gags so i do appreciate that stuff and it is entertaining um i do appreciate the new abilities that mjolnir has uh, as it's able to break apart and reform like it's just cool visual stuff um and, and again that's your t you expect that from the mcu but it's just it's it's I, i'm always so interested into how much uh, of a say that actual directors have in these action set pieces. As I think famously, it's it's been said that, oh yeah, you, you just direct the talky-talky stuff, and we've got a whole team of visual effects directors and supervisors that will map out and choreograph and basically quote-unquote direct the action scenes. I, I don't know. I would love to see if that's the case, and maybe that's why more and more like uh, lately these MCU uh, pieces of entertainment feel more and more like they were created piecemeal in a committee. Um, and I don't have a... I, well, I do have a problem with that from an artistic standpoint, but I am... Please understand, I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to hammer home, like, 
Hammer. That's funny. Like, for example, I'm sure a lot of people that are stupid will have umbrage with uh, Valkyrie's uh, sexual orientation or with Korg uh, hooking up with Dwayne the Rock Johnson at the end uh, for that piece. That that cra- that did make me laugh pretty hard that he hooks up with Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Uh, the Rock. Well, Dwayne the Rock anyway. But I love that Dwayne the Rock had a ridiculous, like, 70s YMCA village people mustache. Uh I, I, you know, all he was missing was an anchor tattoo, but I love that. Like, I, I enjoy that because just representing humanity or rock manity or I forget what, what Korg's race is. Like, I don't feel like it was put together in a committee where someone was like, oh, we should probably include some inclusion uh, because that's, you know, inc- inclusion is just the, the real world, people, in my opinion. Well, not in my opinion, and just that's the fucking way it is. But when I'm talking about put together by committee, I really feel like a lot of these. There's a disconnect between when the director's in charge, when the director's not in charge. I just, you know, I won't dive into it further because it's a whole other podcast. But how long has Jane been the mighty Thor here? Now, I don't have a problem with her being, like, able to fight because the power of Thor gives you the ability to be a warrior. Okay, that's just kind of part of it. But her and Valkyrie seem awfully chummy-chummy. And Valkyrie's all like, oh, you're going to love this one, you know, and stuff like that. And, And I just... I don't know that Valkyrie's ever met Jane before. I guess she would have met her when she first gained the power of Thor because it happened in New Asgard. And maybe Valkyrie's like, oh, hi, you must be Jane Foster. I've heard a lot about you. That's my shitty Tessa Thompson impression. Um, But I will say this as well. Once that mask comes off, I I say this lovingly. I think Natalie Portman's actually pretty good in this. I've I've seen some negativity about her performance. I thought it was fine. She was I I think she was having fun for the first time in this in her Marvel Cinematic Universe appearances. I mean, who wouldn't have fun doing this? But you know, the long blonde Natalie locks. I mean, look, I have an old school first crush style thing on Natalie Portman. Like, I was a freshman in high school when The Phantom Menace came out, so I don't know if I'd call it a first crush, okay? But, yeah, I mean, come on. who, What what teenage heterosexual boy wasn't in love with Queen Amidala, okay? Natalie Portman's a beautiful woman. Um, but she looks great in the Thor armor. It fits her well. Like, she looks like she should be the mighty Thor it is the positive thing I'm talking about. I'm just throwing in a little side, side of, oh, she's hot. Uh, you know, and that's not important. It's not relevant. But, uh, hey, good for you, Natalie. You... You know what? Part of being attractive in quotation marks is having fun, being happy, to me anyway. And Natalie looks like she's having a great time. There weren't always great times, though. We do get a fantastic relationship montage, okay? And I really appreciated the montage of Thor and Jane's relationship as a viewer. Um, I will say this, that I absolutely believed the idea of them growing apart through their own internal struggles and fears. Um, it wasn't something ridiculous like, oh, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I'll leave the... And I could have seen it. I could have seen them being like, I'm sorry, I left the toilet seat up and stuff like that. But it's not that. It's not... It is a little bit of typical relationship bickering, but it's based on the fact that these two people are very much individualists and they don't really know how to coexist, especially when they're afraid of loss. I appreciate that they they did a little work with Jane, her losing her mother at a young age, indicating that she might also have some barriers that she puts up to keep people away. My only problem with this is just nerdy stuff, so you'll have to excuse it. But is this all happening after the Dark World? Because I rewatched the Dark World... Um, and it, he doesn't come back 
after he leaves at the end of he doesn't after Thor one happens he comes back to Earth for the Avengers movie but he never sees Jane okay she's like I saw you on TV you were in New York what the fuck and he's like hey I had to take care of shit with the Bifrost was broken had to tame the nine realms which is totally fine um, this is not a critique of the Dark World so which means and at the end of the Dark World he comes back and they make out and that's you know and, and that's fine but. So their entire relationship took place when Thor was on Earth with the Avengers helping them hunt down uh, Hydra. So I appreciate that he's, you know, hopping around on little Thor missions, but I don't know how much time they were actually together, and he never is once showing grieving for his his mother. I just don't, I don't know, it feels like Thor's too, ha- like, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like a it's part of the cohesive MCU narrative. And so I'll put my final stamp on it like this. I appreciate that Taika Waititi was able to do what he wanted to do for his vision. That's a positive thing. But sometimes, you know, I wanted it reeled in. This was one of them, but it wasn't for non-entertainment purposes. It was for, I wanted this to gel with the MCU more. And that shouldn't be a thing that I care about in a film. You know, we've, you know... I, I, I was, you know, hunting around Twitter and a person I follow that I, I appreciate their takes on films was like, oh, I just I just got done seeing Elvis. What a fucking movie. And I was just kind of thinking to myself, you know, I love Baz Luhrmann. I, I'm not a huge Elvis fan, but I was like, you know what? And, and this was last night when I had just gotten out of Love and Thunder and I was like, wow, what a concept. You actually watch a film that's just exists in the space between when you start watching it and when it ends and it doesn't have all this fucking baggage and it can tell a complete artistic narrative whereas regardless of whether or not you're in a tour or you have complete freedom in an MCU movie it comes with all this fucking baggage and I think it's really starting to break this thing apart at the seams everything just feels like it's piecemeal and put together by committee I'm going back to that again I just don't it's it's gotten so big, it, I don't know that it can maintain itself any further. But again, that might be a podcast for another time. And speaking of can't contain yourself, this film involves a bit of a love triangle. And a lot of times in those situations, one of the members of the love triangle can't contain themselves. And their emotions often get the best of them. This movie's no different. Except it's not a love triangle between Thor, Jane, and perhaps an unidentified gentleman suitor of Jane, or perhaps uh, an unidentified female suitor of Thor's, or male suitor of Thor's, or female suitor of Jane's. I'm not here to uh, pigeonhole anybody. But um, it's a love triangle between Thor, Stormbreaker, and Mjolnir. And it's, it's funny. And then it isn't funny the second, third, and fourth time that it happens. I appreciate what they're going for. You know, Taika, as I mentioned earlier, he does this. Uh, He's hiding the actual serious situation and disguising it as something funny. So I appreciate it from that perspective that he's um, engaging in creative freedom as the co-writer and director to do this. But it's just not working for me Uh, after multiple, multiple attempts. But the quest eventually has to begin. The quest begins by trying to find what's known as Omnipotent City. And that's about what I can tell you about Omnipotent City because the realization of what they need to do on the quest and how they're going to do the quest, everything just happens so fast. 
slow down. Okay, I briefly mentioned earlier that uh, the the rounds were going around that there's like a four hour cut of this thing that's not an assembly cut; it's an actual cut of the film. Last night I dug into this a little bit further, and from the interviews that I read with Taika Waititi and Chris Hemsworth, it appears that this four hour cut did contain a lot of additional quote unquote nonsense, comedic beats, and what have you. But I've got to believe that there's some actual plot or developments in there that allowed this story to just, you know, sort of simmer for a little bit and let us really take in what's going on and understand what's being thrown at us. But again, in this actual cut of the film, and it's, you know, Marvel, this is the only cut we're ever going to get, all right? So this is the movie now. Slow down. I do enjoy the scenes of Jane struggling as uh, the power of being Thor, you know, purges her body of the medicine that's supposed to cure her. But, uh, you know, it's just... It's a quick MCU version of it. Because there's not enough time. This is what we discussed. How can Gore the God Butcher storyline coexist with the Mighty Thor storyline? Who's going to get the short end of the stick? Crazily enough, they found a way to short end both of them. But I would say, if I was gun to my head, or maybe hammer to my head, forced to make a decision, the Mighty Thor storyline wins over the God Butcher storyline in terms of how much time and investment they get, in my opinion. But, but, I do really like the the scenes here between Jane and Valkyrie. I don't know when they became friends, but I really do think they have great chemistry together, and I sort of love their nonverbal communication. Uh, there's the gag where she's like, no, it's a portable speaker, and they kind of like dance to know. I don't know, it's just, it's funny. That's like the good improv stuff that I like that they left in because it's more like personality type humor and more them being humorous to one another as opposed to Thor being oblivious that he just destroyed a sacred temple as it falls in the background being like, oh, I don't, I don't hear anything. What do you hear? Oh, where's the temple? Oh, it was, it's right there. You see? Oh, well, now it's falling down and I'm describing what's actually happening. Oh, there's still a statue left. Oh, now the statue fell down. You know, you, you get what I'm saying. We cut away to Gore in space. But I do actually like this. Uh, so Gore the God Butcher has the children in this creepy looking cage in the Shadow Realm. Which is something we'll briefly learn about, I suppose. But I love, love, love this sadistic story time with Gore the God Butcher that they have. Uh, where he frightens the children and some of the audience, to be honest with you. He kind of puts on a little puppet show as he murders a little god snake type thing in front of them and plays with his head now i know that sounds silly but it's done in such a creepy fantastic way christian bale's clearly having a lot of fun here and uh of course it's christian bale I mean, what'd you expect did you expect this minor performance wouldn't this this character that gets minor screen time wouldn't be good no he totally owns pretty much every second of his screen time i love that in a fun meta way and this is not, I'm not saying this is intended, it's just something that I picked up on. Uh, you know, famously, Christian Bale is, is Batman. He's always going to be Batman to most people, a lot of people, uh, myself included. I mean, he's not. He's so much more. But, you know, you see him, I think Batman. And he's kind of getting to play, like, the Joker here. I mean, he's not really, but he kind of is. I, I, I really appreciated that quite a bit. I also appreciate, though, that this character, you know very much made a choice, uh, and this is what I've interpreted, I don't think he outright says this, that he he specifically takes the children of Asgard because, long story short, he needs Stormbreaker. 
Okay, and he needs to get Thor to come to him on his terms. What do you do? Well, I'm Gore the God Butcher, and I know that I didn't like when something was wrong with my kid, so I'm going to take that kid. Yeah, that'll do. But I, I believe that the character is easily able to determine the quickest way to get him to me is to fuck with the kids. You know, uh, he knows the harm and the pain that you suffer when something negative happens to your children, and he knows he would do anything to make it right. He's assuming the heroes of Asgard will do the same, and he's right. So I appreciate that. It makes Gore the God Butcher seem like an intelligent character. Um, but again, like the the unfortunate thing about Gore is that all of the stuff involving the Necrosword and the plan that the Necrosword seems to have, like then I know the Necrosword wants to kill gods, okay? Uh, it's that's its pure existence, and we know that weapons can have sentience uh, because we know Stormbreaker, Mjolnir, uh, they're alive. I'm doing the finger quotes thing here, not you know. So the Necrosword is also alive, and they don't really play with that. It's such a fantastic opportunity. Of course, at the end, Gore can think straight when the Necrosword is broken to a certain extent, um, but it doesn't change who he is internally as a god hater. But that's we're getting ahead of ourselves. They don't really play with... Because we see all these funny gags about Stormbreaker being pissed at Thor. Um, Well, how about a scene where Gore maybe goes off book and he doesn't want to fuck with the kids? Because deep down, even though he wants to kill gods, fucking with kids isn't what he's trying to do. But the Necrosword forces him to. How about a little of that? Or, you know, the Necrosword has more control. I don't know. It just seems like a missed opportunity because weapons and their relationship with their wielders is a big part of this so why not let gore get in on the fun we head to omnipotent city and it's a fun new location for the mcu there's a lot of easter eggs thrown around here was that the great protector from shang chi was it fin fang foom i don't know uh we did see celestials i think i saw bass the panther goddess as well so uh, this is one of those scenes that I'm sure people or new rock stars on YouTube will break down and I'll watch it and be like, oh, I didn't see that. I didn't see that. I'm so glad I missed that. Big question, though, is E.T. in the Council of Gods and Omnipotent City? Because we all know famously there is some E.T.'s in the uh, Star Wars Senate scene in The Phantom Menace. I see him every time. I remember seeing him for the first time and being like, holy fuck, E.T. is a part of Star Wars. But that's a podcast for another time. We're introduced to Russell Crowe's Zeus. Uh, As our heroes, by the way, I might point out, wear cloaks that apparently represent their emotions because each color is a different emotion. You're just stealing from the Green Lanterns now. And that's okay, but it goes nowhere. There's got to be a cut out there where there's some extra scenes with that stuff, I have to imagine. But, like I said, we meet Zeus. And it is Russell Crowe. And he's not in the greatest shape in the history of our sport, but that's part of the fun of it. So here's the thing. Russell Crowe's doing some sort of accent. I'm not sure what it is. But to me, as a viewer, I'm really picking up what he's putting down. Because he seems like... It's interesting. The way he does his voice, it almost seems like a shitty dub. Okay? And I'm not saying that because the ADR is bad or the, the synchronization doesn't work. That's not, I'm not accusing this at all. I'm also I'm saying it kind of feels like a choice that was made. And I'm loving it because a couple years ago, Mystery Science Theater 3000 was revived over on Netflix. And they did a fantastic episode on a film I had never seen called The Many Loves of Hercules. 
a name we'll talk about later, I promise. But it's fantastic because it's a it's an Italian film uh, that has like the worst dubbing you've ever seen in your life. But Hercules kind of talks like Adisa, like like they. I don't know how to describe it. I'm not trying to do a stereotypical Italian accent. Like, I'm not trying to throw shade. Like, this is all done out of love. Like, I'm feeling like like Russell Crowe's doing this on purpose, like a shitty Italian accent dub of another movie. And I, I fucking love it. Um, I'm not, like, in love with everything that Zeus does, but this vocal performance, I am absolutely fucking here for. I am not here for, in the middle of this speech... Uh, Valkyrie's like, oh no, eternity. Oh, this is bad. Like, come on, slow down. Fuck. It is a fun fight, though, when Zeus unleashes his minions and they kill all the gods that shoot out the gold blood and Valkyrie's, like, bathing in their blood. Like, I don't know, should I be getting turned on by that? Kind of am. No, no, I'm just kidding. Tessa Thompson's a fine actress and I'm not trying to uh, objectify her. All right, but it was a pretty cool scene. But again, it's still moving fast. Now, the sum total of this scene is to tell us that the gods in the MCU are pretty much douchebags. And again, I appreciate that call being made, but it's the MCU, so you, it's it's just surface level, like uh, lowest tier example of that type of thing. So I don't know. The Thunderbolt is a cool enough weapon. The Korg death fake out. I don't know. I mean, I can't tell you how many comics I've read where someone dies in issue one and then by issue two, they're back up on their feet. But it feels different in a film. It feels cheaper. I don't know how to explain that. And you could be like, Johnny, shut the fuck up and slap me in the face because aren't you the type of person that just wants your comic books to show up on the screen? And I'm kind of not. I want to see these characters on screen, but I want to see... Film tropes applied. I don't want... Con- I don't know. I don't even know how to fucking say this. There was a banging music cue, though, when the, uh, the, the fucking boat rams through the window and, you know, the goats are here and god damn. I don't even want... Are, are they rams, goats? I don't know. I'm not a farmologist. I don't know the difference. I just... I don't have a problem that they're here. They're in the comics. But, like, did they have to be like Looney Tunes? It's just one step too far. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it reminded me of the Gremlin from Gremlins 2 that has the like crazy eyeballs that go back and, his fo- back and forth. He's like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, like always laughing. But here's the difference between the crazy-eyed Gremlin and Thor's goats. The Gremlin is funny. Moving towards the Shadow Realm. Now that we have the Thunderbolt, our heroes are on a quest to meet Gore in his own house. And again, the movie slows down for a little bit here, so of course, it's one of the better scenes because we're talking. Jane and Thor, you know, are are really getting the feels for one another. Their chemistry is hot. We cut back to Valkyrie and Korg, or Korg's face, and, you know, Korg starts singing. Another example of just one step too far. Do something funny, man, sure, but I don't know. I just don't know. Um, you know, he, he psychoanalyzes Valkyrie. I did appreciate that. And the thunder starts rumbling. Uh, we know that they started making out, that being Thor and Thor, on the deck. And Valkyrie cleverly says, I don't think they're talking. And I was like, oh, thank God. They're insinuating, at least, that they're fucking. And I'm not 
please, please understand, okay? Like, I'm not sitting here being like they need to fuck because I want to watch like an intimate love scene between Chris Hemsworth and Natalie Portman. I have no problem with that, but I'm not trying to just like, oh, I want to see it. I want to see him fuck. No, I just, come on, man. These, not only is Jane dying, okay? Like, she knows this. Like, fuck Thor one more time. Like, they're in space. Why can't they just sort of float off and disappear off of our screen for a few minutes and then come back and, like, sort of hurriedly, like, fix their armor and be like, oh, are we dressed? Like, like let them have fucking God space sex, okay? It's the most human thing in fucking existence. Let them do it. It could have been tasteful and beautiful. But no, when Valkyrie goes out to interrupt, they're just still kissing. And Jane, of course, does confess her cancer diagnosis to Thor. And Thor's pretty human about it. You know, he tells her to live her life how she feels fit. But, you know, I need you. I love you. And again, it's one of the better parts in the movie because we've got grown-ups talking and saying grown-up things. We get to the Shadow Realm, and you know what? We have a badass fight sequence. I got nothing bad to say about it. I feel like I've mentioned on podcasts here and there that I'm, I'm colorblind. This was money for me. You know, I'm the guy that watches Zack Snyder's Justice League in black and white, not because, well, I do appreciate the artistic elements of it, but I just easy, it's easier for me to watch, man. So the fact that this awesome scene is done in awesome, fantastic black and white with a little splashes of color that really stand out, it's a great artistic choice, but thank you, says Johnny C. the human. I appreciate that. Um, and what have you. But this fight sequence, like I said, is cool. But ultimately, it results in the team being defeated and Stormbreaker falling into the grasp of Gore the God Butcher. And I don't have a problem with that. I think it's good development for your third act. But I have lots of problems with what it transitions into. We transition back to New Asgard, and Valkyrie's been stabbed. Jane is... his Her cancer has really, really taken over at this point. And... I'm okay with, like, the character beats that Jane and Thor have. Thor begs Jane to live, you know, to be the person that he needs, but also respects her wishes that if she feels like she needs to be the mighty Thor and die because, you know, she'll be free of treatment, that he respects that decision. But he makes a personal plea. And, And, you know, that's big of the character to do, and it shows development and change and I like that a lot but there's really something about this whole sequence that just sort of reeks of reshoots either that or really bad scripting especially when Thor goes to talk to Valkyrie he's like all right give me a thunderbolt you okay you're gonna make it all right I'll see you later Thor don't do anything stupid okay I'll be back you know like I just and it's so easy for him to get to eternity too like I'm not saying we needed to delay this thing by it this would feel more earned if we maybe spent some more time doing other things then I wouldn't be like okay they need to get to the third act they just got to rush through this one sequence but the fact that everything has felt like a rush this particular moment that again feels like a good opportunity to slow down just they just rush right to it oh don't worry I'll get the kids it's cool give me the thunderbolt I'll take uh, you know or how does he how does he fucking warp to because uh, he doesn't have stormbreaker oh man I forget how he gets there At this point, I'm not even... I'm not going to waste anybody's time. It's just this whole regrouping scene seems so fast. But hey, then a day Valkyrie's just like, Go get him, Taiga. Like, ah, come the fuck on. I'm just done with it. Let's move on to the final battle. 
It's a great location here in the realm of the center of the universe at Eternity. There's, again, a shit ton of MCU references that I will leave to new rock stars, but I did catch the Living Tribunal, Kang the Conqueror, the Watcher, and I really thought we were getting a Galactus vibe here, but I don't think it was Galactus. Now, I, I am gonna, I'm going to slow down here, okay? Because I want to talk about one of my favorite parts of the film. Thor gets to the uh, center of the universe, and the children are there as bait, I guess, at this point, because, you know, he uh, Gore already has what he wants. Um, or does he have Stormbreaker at this point? I can't fucking remember. It was a long time ago, let me tell you. <laughs> but Thor pulls an Odin by creating an enchantment. There, uh, you know, there's a fantastic scene in Thor, the first one, where he banishes Thor, and then he enchants the hammer. Uh, whoever wields this hammer, if they be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. And that's, you know, Thor 101. I love that he enchants the kids' weapons that they grab. Anything that they can grab to use to defend themselves. What does he do? He empowers the children. It's a fantastic allegory for the modern day. All right? How long can you shelter your children? How long can you keep them from harm? When do you realize that by not empowering them, you're actually putting them at greater risk? You're being just as bad as the things you're frightened of. Empower them with the information they need, the knowledge they have to have, the uh, ability to know when shit has gone bad. If they don't understand what could possibly happen to them in the world, then they're not going to be empowered. So Thor empowers them. And... You know, you do get some cute gags off this, like the little girl with the teddy bear with the Cyclops eyes. I loved it. It was great, shooting the blasters and, and stuff like that. You get Axel, you know, I call him Axel, like, you know, Heimdall's son. He's got the power of the Heimdall sight, and now he's a badass rocking around. Is he going to be a young Avenger? I don't know. That's cool. It's my understanding he's a new character, like completely for the MCU. So that's cool. I like that. Plus, as they fight the shadow minions of Gore the God Butcher, we get a fantastic November Rain music cue. Really good stuff. You know, I assumed November Rain would be in this when I knew that it was sort of a Guns N' Roses themed soundtrack. I thought it would be reserved for one of the quote-unquote sad parts, and it would be the, the, the slower part of November Rain. But here we get the rock out part, as these kids just murder these shadow beasts, and it's fucking fantastic. I, got, I feel like Taika had to have been... Behind the behind the director's editing bay, when uh, when this sequence was put together, because this doesn't feel like your stereotypical MCU action. I really liked it a lot. In Thor's moment of need, Jane makes her choice. She takes Valkyrie's mighty steed, rides it to the center of the universe, and becomes the mighty Thor for the one last time. Again, top-notch action and fighting between all of our principal characters. I can't say enough positive things about it. The use of Mjolnir was also fantastic. Breaking apart, capturing the broken shards of the Necro Sword. I mean, I'm not going to get into the the weeds of it. Uh, it's it's totally fine. It's just that's not what we're here for. The, you know, the action's good. The thematic stuff, I feel like, is the more important discussion points. Um, but eventually, the door opens, and we are in eternity. Okay. Oh, I should probably mention before we get there uh, that the, being the mighty Thor has finally taken its task on Jane. She can't grasp Mjolnir anymore, and she turns into her pure human form. So we end up in this beautiful-looking Eternity Realm. It's Jane Foster, Thor Odinson, and Gore, no longer the God Butcher per se, because the Necrosword is gone. And there is a a rock, stat, like a, 
you know, there's like a, a replica a statue of the bean, and it's just look. There's a little tome you can touch and make your wish. Okay, whoever gets to eternity first can make one wish that cannot be denied, and what have you. Okay, and you know, we talk about professional wrestling a lot, and sometimes we'll watch a pay per view and be confused, saying things like, you know, did the agents or the producers even talk to one another because we just had two matches back to back that ended in a double count out? Or the first match was a DQ because of a weapon, and so was the main event. Like, did they not coordinate this ahead of time? Well, folks, allow me to apply that to Thor, Love and Thunder, and the MCU. Because this plot device is literally, and yes, I mean literally, literally, the Book of Ashanti from Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. At the center of the universe, the center of existence, the center of the multiverse in the bleed, the necropoint, whatever the fuck you want to call it, There is a magic wishing machine. There is a magic wishing machine. I'm going to say it a third time to emphasize it. There is a magic wishing machine. Gore the God Butcher decides that, you know, he's going to use his one wish to fuck this shit. Why wish for the death of the gods when you can actually get the one thing you've actually wanted the whole time? Uh, Thor gives him a great speech and says, I'm not even going to fight you, man. It's not worth it, because if you are going to go wish away all gods in existence, I'm going to go over here and be with the person that I love and live my last moments. Really good stuff. Thor no longer pushing people away, realizing that he wants to feel the shit, which is something I haven't talked about. You've seen the movie. You know what it is. I I liked it. It was a little cheesy, a little corny, but I I liked it. Okay, I did. But Gore's face turn is believable. So I, I like that too. Jane's death, powerful. You know, she becomes the golden dust that the actor is in Asgard. It's, it, you know, I will say this about the script. There were some things that were set up earlier that paid off later. Obviously, you do that for your audience all the time. But And, and first of all, I never want to see Matt Damon and Thor's brother, like, and Chris Hemsworth's brother and uh, fucking Dr. Alan Grant again. Like, it's funny, but they're beating it into the ground. They're beating it into the ground. But when Odin, in quotes, dies, you know, he becomes the gold dust. Welcome, gold dust, Odin. Follow. I'm not going to sing. Um, so Jane dying as a god in battle because she was the mighty Thor at certain times, I guess. Technicality. But she vanishes into the gold dust, earning her spot in Valhalla. Beautiful stuff. And it's cheapened later, but at the time, I'm digging it. I can't believe they actually did it. They killed her off. They killed off an MCU character. Or did they? Um, But Thor makes the promise to the God Butcher, or Gore, because Gore is dying too. Gore wishes his daughter back to life as opposed to wishing the death of all the gods, but Gore needs someone to take care of her. And Thor, Odin's son, because of his vow, is that person. And I appreciate that. Then they wrap it up and they put a bow on the movie. We find out how everyone's ended up now that the day is saved. Sif is arm one arm short but training Axel to be a warrior. Valkyrie is training the next generation of Asgard to be warriors so they can protect themselves. Kolg regrows his body and finds love with the village people's Dwayne the Rock. Uh, a funny story about this Dwayne the Rock gag. He, you know, he's just like, I met a guy named Dwayne and we made a baby, which is hilarious and great and i love Dwayne's look with the mustache we've talked about but 
there's a kid behind me who goes, Dwayne the Rock! Dwayne the Rock, Dad! And normally, I'd get pissed when people talk during the movie, but I didn't get the gag at first. Uh, you know, I'll freely admit, it just didn't register with me. Uh, and, and this kid brought it to my attention, and I fucking loved it. I was like, thanks, my man. I appreciate that. I'd have turned around and given him the rock, but I was paying attention, and I didn't want to mess with him, because, you know. Uh, which brings up a side note about The Rock. That fucking Black Adam trailer played before this film. Now, look, I love the DC universe. I love the DC films. We can fight about it later, okay? This Black Adam movie looks fucking awful. I love Black Adam as a character. The amazing fucking world-sized miniseries called 52 from DC Comics was one of the first things I ever read in real time. When it came out. Black Adam's a huge part of that. I love Black Adam. The fucking Rock is not playing Black Adam. Fuck! And I know I'm going to see it anyway. i just putting it out there right now. I am not excited for that. And I like the JSA. <sighs> Anywho. Um, our final big narrative point is Thor raising Gore's daughter. Who is called Love. And I like it. Um, and this kid and, and, and Chris Hemsworth really have great chemistry together. Uh, I guess it's because it's played by Chris Hemsworth, act- Chris Hemsworth's actual daughter, which I love. It gives me all the feels, okay? And I love the setup that Thor's just dad now. He's domesticated dad. I'm making uh, pancakes or whatever he calls them. He's helping her tie her shoes. She's drawing on Mjolnir and giving it a silly face because, yes, Thor is now wielding Mjolnir and Axel is wielding Stormbreaker as it's the new sword to open the Bifrost. So that's cool with me, too. I like Thor being back in his original setup, and it's a nice fake-out. They make us think maybe they're in the suburbs somewhere on Midgard. She's getting ready to get on the school bus. No. She's love, he's thunder, and they're going across the galaxy, putting right what once went wrong, much like famed Dr. Sam Beckett from Quantum Leap. And, you know, they're known across the universe as love in thunder. The absolutely obvious musical sting of Sweet Child of Mine hits, but I love it because it's synergy and it actually fits in with what we're seeing, and it puts a nice bow on the entire presentation of Thor, Love, and Thunder which started with me getting excited because of the awesome trailer and ultimately being disappointed. But you get your big hero shot, and I like that. It ends solid. You know, they say you should always leave your audience happy, and at least they did that for uh, until I started walking out and thinking about the entire presentation. Okay? So, that's a bow on it. Or is it? It's Marvel. We get our post two post-credit scenes. Let's talk about the last scene first. It's in Valhalla. Jane Foster materializes, and I'm like, oh, Jesus, she's not dead. She is dead, but she's in heaven, or Valhalla. Um, You know, I don't have faith that they'll keep her hidden like they do the Force Ghosts in Star Wars, because those Force Ghosts are only used when necessary. Why not use them at the end of The Rise of Skywalker when it was absolutely necessary? That's a different podcast. But, of course, my instant feeling was, oh, well, that was a nice little fake out. They made us feel bad that Jane was dead. And yes, she's dead, but she's okay. She's in Valhalla. But the camera pans around and Idris Elba is here. And fuck yes. But hopefully this man hasn't recommitted to the MCU because he should just fucking be James Bond. But I like seeing him back here. Idris Elba, historically, ridiculously underused as in the Thor films and in the MCU in general. But thanks for protecting my son. You know... 
you know, let's let's walk up to Valhalla and see what's going on. And uh, this will probably ultimately lead to her finding the Valkyries in Valhalla and resurrecting them and then becoming the new leader of the Valkyries as, you know, I mean, hey, it's comic books are just going to adapt what works. Uh, so that's cool. But again, just you're making me feel stupid for feeling sad. And I think that's ultimately what I don't like about these films becoming more like the comic books in every sense is that when I'm watching a movie and I have a genuine emotional reaction, I feel stupid in retrospect for having that reaction. I don't like feeling being made to feel stupid. Now let's talk about the, the post credit scene that probably is going to get your most online chatter. It appears that Zeus lives, even though he was pierced with his own thunderbolt. And again, there's a lot of interesting information given to us here, but it's rushed because it's the post credit scene and we've only got a minute. You know, Zeus contemplates his own existence as a god. These people, they don't worship us anymore. This is me doing the Italian accent. Uh, they don't worship us anymore. They look up into the sky. They want to see their superheroes. So I will bring Thor Odin's son down. You know, it's decent enough stuff. And then he tells his son, the mighty Hercules, that he's sending him after Thor. The camera turns and we see what is supposed to be Hercules and he looks like absolute fucking dog shit. Okay, now let's pause this here, okay? Let me explain what I mean by he looks like dog shit, alright? And I should preface this that I like the MCU Hercules. The Incredible Hercules run uh, by Greg Pak with Amadeus Cho as his sidekick. Fucking love it. I'm excited for Hercules. Here's the fun part about Hercules, kids. Hercules is basically the MCU version of Thor before Thor decided to become the MCU version of Thor. Hercules' aloofness and sort of surfer bro attitude is what they've turned Thor into. So I'm a little pissed about that since they're bringing Hercules in. Um, the gentleman that plays him, I've got, I'm not shaming this man's appearance. He looks fine as Hercules, okay? I don't have any problem that he's not 7 foot 10 and fucking 400 pounds and built like fucking 1986 Hulk Hogan. That's not what this is about. The, the pre, the, this looks like shit! Did they film this in one day? Like, this poor actor was brought onto a fucking little tiny soundstage because, God forbid, any spoilers get out. They have to keep this shit so secretive. If you recall in my Multiverse of Madness uh, presentation, I said that the scene with Clea and Doctor Strange looked like a porn parody because it looked so fucking fake because it was Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, Charlize Theron on a little stage surrounded by green because they didn't want anybody to know about it. Well, did they fucking pull his outfit out of the goddamn kitty section at Old Navy? Fucking gods are us. What is this shit that he's wearing? And it's not that the present, that it, you know, if that's his uniform, that's fine. But it just looks like shit. What is CG? What is real? I, I just, ah, uh, I don't understand it. Just film the man wearing a real fucking superhero suit in front of a real wall. I don't even care. It just looks bad. How are people excited about this that don't know who Hercules is? 
I like that it's a setup for Thor 5. God, can you imagine Thor getting a fifth movie? I mean, it's probably going to happen. Um, I, so I'm excited about Hercules. Like, Hercules great. And like I said, I watched Ted Lasso. I'm going to watch all of Ted Lasso. That's cool. I didn't know who this guy was. I had to look him up. Maybe that's why I did. I, but I don't know. The, it looks like shit. Literally looks like, with my eyeballs, looks like shit. I'm not critiquing any other aspect of it aside that it looks like shit. I'm done, though. I'm done talking about this movie. I'm getting a headache. Overall, I'm going to give this a 5 out of 10. I wanted to go 6, but because my initial thesis was I liked a lot of it. And then I was like, well, if you cut it in half, I liked about half of it. And I liked about... And I didn't like half of it. So I'll give it a 6 to be fair. But then I was like, no, fuck that. I didn't even like half of it. I liked about 40%. So me giving them a 5 out of 10 is me being fair. And I'm just going to retcon my Doctor Strange the Multiverse of Madness score as well to a 6. Because when I walked out of that movie and reviewed it for you all, I was definitely a little too still excited about seeing new Marvel content. I'm not dealing with that here. I'm dealing with sheer disappointment. And I think, I don't know about the rest of you, the audience in my theater, maybe it was just everybody's bad day, we were pretty silent the most of the first half of the movie when they're doing the quote-unquote really funny stuff. So I don't know if this is going to land with audiences. But that is my absolute final take on Thor Love and Thunder, this version. You show me another version someday, I'll be more than happy to reanalyze my score. I'm sure I'll watch this movie again someday, probably the day it comes out on Disney+, Plus, because I'm that type of person. But uh, as it stands now... I am not loving the Thunder. And that's okay. I appreciate that Taika got what he wanted to get out there into the universe mostly. Okay? It just wasn't what I wanted out there in the universe. So it's a win for creativity, a loss for Johnny C. And that's where we're going to end it. What's not a loss for all of you is my final ridiculous again, not ridiculous, plug for the North South Connection Podcast Network. Do all the shit you're supposed to do. And come back the next time something crazy happens out there in the real cinematic universe. And we'll tackle it here on the North-South Connection Podcast Network. I bid you all adieu. Johnny C, is podcast over? Yes, Yelena, the podcast is over. Good, because I'm going to go talk to all my online spy Black Widow friends about my thoughts on the movie. Oh no, I can't get into AL. Kate Bishop, what's the AOL instant messenger password? Ha! Of course! Password is macaroni and cheese.